if you're just starting to come to Crossroads, you, you just got a strong taste of this church. The raw, real, humble passion that's here. Um, so good to be here. Uh, again, if you are a visitor, welcome. Um, also to our family, and I'm a little bit out of sorts. I'll just be really honest. Um, my wife drove to work, and it was 10 to 9. I was getting ready to come here, and I couldn't find the car keys. And I'll make a really long story short, okay? Because I couldn't get in touch with her and all of that, but yes, she did have my car keys with her at Crossroads. <laughs> and so I got here about uh, 10, 15 minutes ago. So I'm just a little out of sorts today, um, but, but I am here. Um, but more importantly, um, Kurt and Shelley Kuntz, who have been coming to this church almost from the very beginning, uh, if you're not aware of this, Kurt's sister-in-law was tragically killed in a car accident. Um, they leave behind five kids. Kurt was the one that had to uh, tell uh, many of those kids what had happened. So if you know Kurt and Shelley, just uh, also keep them in your prayers. Okay, Luke, here we go. Luke chapter 19 is where we've made it. While you're turning there, we've entered the last week of, of Jesus' life, and it's, it's such a precious part of the biblical story. And we're going to be studying this last week, starting today, for the next two months, going right through Easter. And I kind of like that because right now it's, it's, it's very winter out. And by the time we finish the last week of Christ, hopefully spring will be in the air. Uh, so that's just to encourage everybody. And, and those seasons so fit to uh, the story because this whole thing, if you know where it's going, it ends with uh, new life, with resurrection. Uh, just a couple of preliminaries before we step into the, to this uh, precious part of the Bible. It's very important that we know that Jesus is not a victim of anything that occurs to him at any moment in his life, especially his last week. He is in complete control of everything. In fact, as we're going to see today, he, he literally goes into program mode where he is orchestrating every last detail. Because the details are important. The details, and through the details, we get to see who Jesus is and what he means. And that's what I hope happens over the next two months is not just that we would know the information, not just that we could um, come away knowing better the events that happen, but we would know the meaning of these events. Because these events are awesome. They're central to all of history. And this is where I appreciate guys like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien with their epic tales as they try to make sense of these events because they, they, they blow them out of the water and, 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 and kind of through their stories. Take the Chronicles of Narnia. What's Narnia? It's a, it's a world ruled by a wicked witch who's cast her spell. And what's her spell? It's winter, always. No Christmas, ever. Okay, and... Then the rumor goes out. 
that Aslan is on the move. And all of a sudden, the earth and the trees begin to thaw, and the snow begins to melt, and the smell of spring is in the air because this great lion has come to deal with the witch and to, to, to crack her spell and to destroy it. And how does he do it? Through a deeper magic. And, and, and when you read these stories as a kid, it's like, you, you, or even as an adult, you're just longing for, for that same rumor of, of someone to come to, to break the spell of, of winter because we all know winter. We heard winter in our life story this morning. Kurt and Shelley Kuntz are going through winter right now. Winter is the world we live in. And if we're all honest right now, winter is something that we all know really well. And to think that this lion is on the move. And he's come to change everything. And that's not just cosmic, as great as it is. It's personal. And that's why I don't know where you are with Jesus today. But I hope over the next weeks that we can drink every drop of this story. Not just to know it, but that God would allow it to change us profoundly. Because that's what this story is. It is the greatest world-changing, life-changing story. And it can change our lives. God, please, please. Let these not just be words on a page. Let this not just be um, us going through a story that we know so well. Open the eyes of our heart to see the king and who the king is and why the king matters and what the king did and is doing right now to bring spring and new life and resurrection to our world and, Lord willing, to our own hearts. We pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead... And going up to Jerusalem as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. And he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. One in which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you why are you untying it? Just tell them the Lord needs it. And so those who were sent ahead uh, went and found it just as had been told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, as they would, why are you untying this colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices For all the miracles they had seen, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you shalom, and now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And this is God's word. You can be seated. So as we know, the, the, the context of this is Passover, which is the granddaddy of all the Jewish celebrations. Uh, Jewish pilgrims from, from all over the world, the Roman Empire, uh, from Asia, Asia Minor, uh, East, West, North, South, Egypt, all descending upon Jerusalem. So a, a city of Jerusalem at this time is about the size of Grand Rapids. All of a sudden, it turns into three million people, according to the historian Josephus. So you have to picture Jesus as he has set his face like flint, and he's making his way to Jerusalem for this feast, that there are hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who are swarming around him. They get to this city, Jericho, and Luke tells us that the people want to be near Jesus. And I love it because this blind man who's named Bartimaeus already gives us some wonderful foreshadowing when he announces who Jesus is. Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Screaming that from the top of his lungs. King Jesus, Messiah Jesus, have mercy on me. And so they make their way from Jericho And then they make the ascent. And I love to take our group here, so I'm just going to show you a couple pictures uh, just so I can whet your appetite a little bit. Do we have that PowerPoint or maybe not? Not that one. This one. Okay, this is Jericho's behind us, and Jerusalem's ahead of us. It's 15 miles through that kind of desert and climbing 3,500 feet in a matter of 15 miles. That's the road. And it's the road the pilgrims would have taken. And it's, it's here where pilgrims for Passover would start singing. Does anybody know what they'd start singing? The songs. The songs of what? Of Aliyah. Because going up to temple, especially for Passover, is doing Aliyah. And, and so the songs of Aliyah, or songs of ascent, are found Where? Psalms, Psalms uh, 120 through 132. In fact, uh, if, you, if you understand those psalms in this light, I mean, I lift my eyes to the hills for where does my help come from. It's not just any time we look to the hills, but it's, it's those hills. It's, and let me just show you how, how Jerusalem works. Go back to um, this slide right here. Now, this is Jerusalem today. Way to my right... Top right, you can see the desert, can't you? Look hard. So you come through the desert, that first hill where there's a tower, does anybody know what hill that is? It's Mount of Olives, 
It's the first hill you hit. And you come down the hill, see the golden dome? It's called Dome of the Rock. It's where the temple was in Jesus' day. On this huge platform, five football fields this way, uh, two and a half football fields this way. What's that hill called? Moriah, Mount Moriah. That's where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, right on that same mountain. And then this hill on, on this side, I know it looks pretty flat to us, but when you're actually there, it, it, it actually is a little bit more hilly. Uh, this hill is Mount today called Mount Zion. So you have these three hills. And uh, so Jesus comes through the desert with all the travelers, and they come to the Mount of Olives, which overlooks Jerusalem. And I want you to feel the sense of anticipation. Because the Mount of Olives is significant in the biblical story. What happened there as it relates to kings? This is called King-Making Hill or Messiah Hill because every king was anointed on the Mount of Olives. To anoint is uh, the word Mashiach, so it was called King-Making Hill or Messiah Hill. Um, and then when you add to this, Zechariah 4, verse 14, or 14, verse 4, that when God comes in Messiah, he will stand on this hill. Messiah hill. So, of course, um, Olive Orchard would have covered that hill. But a second thing also filled that hill. It does to this day, and it did going back all the way to the time of Jesus. Does anybody else know what else is on that hill? Graves, all kinds of them. Um, in fact, uh, if you could show me just one more picture, just so you can uh, uh, get a sense of this is our group looking down. We're on top of the Mount of Olives, looking down into the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount Moriah. All those stones there are graves. Why graves? It's when Messiah is going to come. When he comes back, those Jewish people want a front row seat. Because they know their book. So, as Jesus is approaching the Mount of Olives, I can guarantee you what every pilgrim traveling with Jesus is wondering. Is this guy going to walk in? Or is he going to ride in? And it's not just because dignitaries uh, don't walk or important people or especially kings. They, they, they always ride in. The important people always ride in. They, they make a grand entrance. But to the Jewish people, it was even more than that. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Messianic text. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. So feel the excitement when Jesus gets to this point. And he turns back to his disciples and he says, you too, go get me a donkey. They just walked a hundred miles. And now Jesus says, I want to ride in. In fact, I think this is the most emphatic statement Jesus makes 
to the world that he's the king, the Messiah. He didn't have to say a word. When he sat on that donkey on top of the Mount of Olives and rode into Jerusalem, that was a statement to everybody as to who he was. This thing turns into a frenzy. People are probably climbing palm trees to get palm branches. Uh, The streets probably part like the Red Sea. People are amassing on both sides. Coats are being taken off. Look at verse 36. It says that they, they, they threw their coats down before Jesus. Again, this is a symbol. It, it's saying to, to this king, my allegiance, my total allegiance is to you. I lay my life down. I bow myself to you. Then the singing in verse 37, it's, it's loud, it's, it's, it's passionate, it's, it's one voice. And then they break into this chant. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then you get the response of the religious leaders. In verse 39, the religious leaders uh, tell, tell, tell Jesus, get these guys to shut up. Why are they doing this? It's because they're scared. You don't do this at a feast when you have Roman soldiers uh, positioned just a couple of football fields away. While all this is going on, only Luke gives us a detail All the gospel writers give us this account, but only Luke gives us this detail. Verse 41, look at it. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept. In fact, that word for weep, it's not just a little like sniffle or, or, or that. It means to literally weep uncontrollably. Can you picture it? This frenzy of people on both sides of the road, Jesus making his way down, people throwing off their cloaks, raising palm branches, shouting, King Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and Jesus starts to weep profusely. Why? Well, this is where I have to borrow from the other gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, and John provide two details that help me understand why I think Jesus is weeping because these gospel writers uh, include the palm branches, which is why we call this day Palm Sunday. And then they also uh, include this thing they chanted at the end of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they would end that with, Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hoshana. Why would that cause Jesus to weep? Well, we've talked about the zealots before. The zealots were a subsection of the Jewish people who were, who were extremely passionate towards God. They were passionate about God's word, about the story. In fact, this is what zealot means. It means passionate one because they burned with this nationalistic uh, fervor. Because these guys, when they looked at their story and they saw their heroes like Moses, Caleb, Joshua, David, Elijah, 
they saw that these men all picked up the sword and killed Philistines, Egyptians, wicked people, Goliath. And so these guys thought, all right, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to be as God's people. They had Torah in one hand. They had a sword in the other. Now, in Jesus' day, not everyone was a card-carrying zealot. The zealots were a minority. But every Jew, minus the religious leaders who were in bed with Rome, had zealotry in their blood because they hated Rome. They hated Roman oppression. They hated Roman taxes. They especially hated the fact that Rome constantly crucified their countrymen. And historically, nationalistic movements always have their symbols. They have their flags, whether it's Nazi Germany or ISIS. There's flags everywhere. For the zealot, their flag was the palm branch. And they'd wave this thing like maybe you see flags waved at World Cup or the Olympics. And the Romans then, in Jesus' day, made the waving of a palm branch a crucifiable offense. Palm branches come out for Jesus. The zealots also had a battle cry, just like nationalistic movements do, like Hail Caesar, Heil Hitler, or Allah Akbar. Their cry was Hoshana. Hoshan means Lord save us. The na is put at the end. It's, it's that passionate please. It's Lord, save us, please. It's not Lord, save us from our sins. It's Lord, save us from our enemies. Destroy them. Kill them. And here it is, Passover. When every Jew celebrates God taking on Pharaoh, destroying the Egyptian army. And they're waving palm branches and they're shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana. Kill them. Destroy them. And Jesus weeps. And the reason he weeps is because they have completely misunderstood who he is, what his whole kingdom is about and why he came to this world. Here's my question. Have we missed him? I I, I, I think it's, it's important. I think this is the reason why God gives us all these details in the fullness of time. It's like he's perfectly setting the table. So we can understand Jesus in light of Herod. We can understand Jesus in light of the religious leaders. We can understand Jesus in light of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. We can understand Jesus in light of zealots. Because what the zealots show me is just how dramatic Jesus' message really is. He didn't come to bring the sword. 
He said, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. He says, the way you change the world, it's not by getting power, it's by giving up power. It's not through kings, it's not through Caesars, it's not through priests and Levites, it's not through presidents, it's not through senators, that's not how the world is changed. The world is changed through people who look and live like Jesus. That's how it's changed. And Jesus said, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, you love your enemies, you bless them, you turn the other cheek to them, you pray for them. And you know, this is a good time to be talking about this. Too many Christians today want to wrap the cross in the American flag. We do. It was one of the first battles I fought at this church. And I know some people probably get up right now and and leave as I'm talking. But I didn't want an American flag in our church. Not because I don't love America. I love it. It's a blessing to be here. This is the church. The church universal. I'm going to push this further. Now I know someone will for sure get up. All this talk about guns these days. Are you kidding? Where's our testimony? I'm not saying that no one should have a gun. In fact, Jesus later in the story, just a few chapters, is going to ask, any knives, disciples? Any, do we have any knives? Which is the equivalent of a gun that day. And two of the guys say, yep, we got one. So he, there's two, two knives. Jesus said, that's enough. That's enough, two. Who do we trust? We trust chariots? Or we trust in the name of the Lord? What's our witness? Are we like him? Are we showing him off to the world? Do we love our enemies? Do we pray for those who mistreat us? Do we bless those who are mean to us? Do we? This is Jesus. This is his movement. Yeah, it got quiet in here, didn't it? <laughs> the white witch, is, it, it, it's not Romans. The white witch isn't Democrats. It's not Republicans. The white witch isn't liberals. It's not conservatives. The white witch isn't a certain race. It's not a religion. It's not ISIS. The white witch, according to our story, is the great serpent of Genesis 3. It's that evil serpent that continues to strike at us. And that serpent has cast its spell over our whole world. Every square inch of this world is infected with the spell of sickness, decay, and death. It is. And that's the enemy. And we 
we know this spell personally. We know it through sickness. We know it through disease. We, we know it through cancer. We know it through divorce. We know it through depression. We, we, we heard it this morning in, in life stories. We hear it in tragedy. And we know that the spell is not just something that's out there, but it, it's something that infects in here. You want to know what the gospel is? It's the king on a colt. A stinking colt. The one who spoke the universe into existence through the power of his word, who fashioned the galaxies, who knows every star by name. Your king comes to you. Not just on a donkey, but on a baby donkey. Is this a joke? <laughs> Seriously? Are you kidding? It's the gospel. This is God's way. We see in every facet of Jesus, he's born not in royalty, but to peasants. Not in a palace, but in a stinking barn. Not having a high position like king or Caesar or high priest. He's just a simple rabbi. He's not surrounded by the exalted. He's surrounded by the broken and sinners and the outcast and the outlaw. And we're going to see he's not going to be lifted up on a throne. He's going to be lifted up on a cross. And now as God planned it hundreds of years through the prophet Zechariah, your king comes to you on a little ass. Literally. It's almost as if God is making a mockery of triumphal processions. I mean, Caesar perfected the, the, the procession. He, he would per, parade through crowds on this fearsome white war horse with the chariots and the legions behind him with all the pomp and circumstance that, that Rome could, could muster. And this world knew those kind of processions. And here comes the king of the universe, barely at eye level with everybody, sitting on a baby donkey. Because our king comes to us as Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, humble, humble. Because this king is, is, is different than, than any other king. His infinite majesty is his infinite meekness. His infinite power is demonstrated through his infinite weakness. His infinite glory is shown through his infinite humiliation. His absolute sovereignty is carried out through perfect submission. So Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. Does anybody know where he's headed? All the gospel writers mention this. He's on a mission. He knows where he's going. He knows what he's doing. All four gospel writers mention that he, his destination is the temple. Why the temple? Let's go way back in Luke's gospel when Jesus was just 12 years old, maybe celebrating his first Passover or his bar mitzvah, and they're, they're in Jerusalem, and it's time for the family to head home. They get out there probably a couple of days. 
where's Jesus? Where is he? And they finally find him where? The temple. Surrounded by rabbis. They say, Jesus, where were you? What does Jesus say? My father's house doing my father's business. And here Jesus is entering Jerusalem again. And and what's he doing? He's going to the temple. And why is he in the temple? To do his father's business. But this time his father's business is, is more than just sitting around with a bunch of rabbis learning Torah. This time it's to fulfill it. As the king to end all kings, the priest to end all priests, the temple to end all temples, he is now going to become the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He's going to become the lamb to end all lambs. That's the father's business. I love that place in Revelation 5 where John is years later He's weeping. He's weeping because no one can open the scroll. And the scroll is the, the, the events that have to unfold that, that, that show us that Jesus is the, is the king and, and that he wins. And, and, and no one can open the scroll. So John begins to cry. And all of a sudden, this elder comes up to him and says, Listen, it's going to be okay. Because the lion from the tribe of Judah, he has won. And he said, Look at him. And John said, when I looked at this lion, I saw a lamb as if it had been slain. Kind of like Apollos last week when he was here and sharing his story about these visions that he had of Jesus pursuing him. And he said in that third vision of Jesus pursuing him, Jesus reached out his hand and it was was all bloody. You see, when we see him and when we behold him, we're not going to see a ravenous lion. Instead, we're going to see a lamb that's been slain. And see, that's what this king on a colt means, that he comes to us weak and humble. And and, and the way that he's going to conquer is by being conquered. The way he's going to destroy evil once and for all, he's going to be the one destroyed. Because our king came not to bear the sword but to fall on the sword. To give us the deeper magic. The death to death is in the death of Christ. That's the deeper magic. The death to death is in the death of Christ. Do you see him? Do you? Or is he weeping for you? Have you missed him? Have you just created Jesus in your own imagination, in your own image? We all have been made to know this king. We've been made to serve this king. We've been made to love this king. We've been made to bow to this king. And I'll tell you what happens when we actually bow to him and give our life to him. We're like this donkey. This donkey that's never been broken. See, you suburbanites and urbanites miss this little detail. But anyone who lives uh, in farm world with animals knows that you never ride a horse, a baby horse, or this would apply to a donkey too, without it being broken. 
But look what happens when Jesus sits on its back and is in control and on top. This animal is healed of all its restless fear, distrust. Is this king, has he come to you? Has he come into your life? See, we all need a personal Palm, Palm Sunday. Uh, we, we can't just like know about this, this event. It, it has to become personal because when it becomes personal, now the information turns into transformation. And if you're looking for transformation today, I got two things. Take your coat off and lay it before him as a picture of you laying your life before him. Bow to this king. Submit to this king. Let this king come into your life. And from your heart, say to him, Hoshana. Hoshana, Lord, I need help. Save me. Save me. And come to him the way that he comes to us. He comes humbly. He comes lowly. We got to stop all this lion stuff that goes on amongst Christians. We're always trying to flex our spiritual muscles and trying to be good enough and trying to prove ourselves and, and show ourselves to be strong. We got to stop all of that. If Luke, the gospel, hasn't taught us anything, Jesus loves poverty. Come to him poor. Invite him in. And let this great lion, let him be your lamb. Let him be the lamb. You need a lamb. You need someone who can stand in your place. And die the death that you deserve to die. So when you trust this lion to be your lamb, you will live. And spring and new life will break out. So this morning I invite you to take in the lamb. But don't come if you're not ready to surrender. And lay your life down. So God, this morning, we just want to celebrate that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God, though we know you to be the great lion, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the King, the Messiah, the Lord of Lords, you do your work by being a lamb. This morning, may we humble ourselves before you. May we submit our lives to you. May we take you in as our lamb. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.